You're listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast, as Pastor Jared preaches on the book of Micah. If you'd like more information, visit us at tulsabible.org. For all of you who have uh, raised kids in your home, maybe you've got little kids in your home right now, I want to tell you a story, and, and you just tell me if you would be okay with your kids hearing this story at a, at a young age. There's a story of a, of a little girl who runs away with her dog, and she gets caught up um, on the road that she's going down. She meets three strangers. Uh, she becomes quick friends with these three strangers and, and walks this road to the Emerald City in order to f- find their deepest desires and wishes fulfilled by this great wizard. Wouldn't it be wonderful to teach your kids that story at an early age, that this is something that's okay to do, right? It'd be even more wonderful to, to read it and listen to it while watching Pink Floyd or listening to Pink Floyd. That might be another thing that you might think about not doing uh, with your kids, but you can if you want to. Uh, toward the end of The Wizard of Oz is one of my very favorite scenes. The second time Dorothy and her three friends go to the wizard. She's got the, the broomstick of the Wicked Witch in her hand. And she shows up at the doorstep of the wizard in order to get all of these things that she and, and her closest friends wanted to get. And she's met with a, a reluctance on the part of the wizard even to meet with them or to talk to them. And she thinks this is really suspicious and doesn't understand why, after all, she's got the broomstick of the Wicked Witch. And so some days uh, elapse and go by, and and finally they find themselves before the wizard and and making their appeal to them. And and just so happens in this course in the moment that Toto, Dorothy's little dog, kind of wanders away and starts tugging at the curtain. You remember this scene? And he tugs at the curtain so much that the, the curtain actually falls, and you find that behind the curtain is this, it's just this old guy who's pushing buttons for smoke and mirrors and thunder and loud voices and and really like this this great majestic wizard that we thought was at the head of the Emerald City who granted all these wishes and gave people their deepest desires was just this this old guy with a bunch of bells and whistles. Um, And it has this refrain, that said over and over again, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's really a, it's a sad story, but it's a, it's a story of leadership. It's something that I want to apply here to Micah chapter 2. And again, we're going to read more about uh, some sad leadership in the book of Micah through the nation of Israel as we progress into, into even chapter 3. Um, the Wizard of Oz is a great example, a a sad example of false leadership. The wizard spent a lot of money on on power posturing and scare tactics in order to instill fear and ultimately to control people. What you realize at the end of the story is, is the wizard is really no leader at all. He's a false leader. Micah chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 address false leaders in Israel. I'm going to address this passage all about leadership and, and what we can do to identify false leaders and even to avoid them. We're going to see three things as this chapter unfolds. Number one, why we should avoid false leaders. Number two, 
how to identify them. And then number three, you're going to see this great juxtaposition or the antithesis of false leadership with the true leader, the Messiah who is to come. I want to be really careful here before we get into this sermon, because a lot of times when we talk about false leaders and really even in the way that the Bible does, uh, it's easy to go on a witch hunt. It's pretty easy to grab your torches and pitchforks, identify weaknesses in leaders and and just um, just go out in an attacking mode in, with an effort to or a goal to bring leaders down. And, and at some point and at some level, that's actually a good and a godly thing to do, to identify where leadership has gone wrong and to adjust that accordingly as, as Scripture encourages us to do. But dealing with false teachers is not, it's not a side issue in the Bible. This is not a marginalized topic whatsoever. This is actually a topic that's dealt with over and over again, not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament concerning the prophets, the false prophets in Israel. If you remember in Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, watch out for false prophets, for they will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous or ferocious wolves. Jesus himself denounced the false teachers, the religious leaders at his time in Matthew chapter 23, and just seven woes over and over again. Woe to you, false teachers. Woe to you, hypocrites. You teach the people to do these things, and all the while you don't do them yourself. And over and over again, Jesus denounces false leaders. The apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18 He says this, brothers, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul will later on instruct young Timothy and Titus, what we know as the pastoral epistles, how to identify false teachers. Uh, what to do with them, what they're teaching, what they're motivated by, and how to separate yourselves from false teachers so that you and your Christian life and the church can flourish in a healthy context. He often says, have nothing to do with false teachers. Warn them once and then twice and then send them on their way. And the reason why he says that is, is for their own protection. A false teacher in a congregation or in a, a local assembly can destroy the gospel and leave uh, susceptible victims just hanging out to dry in terms of doctrine and and teaching and in terms of uh, living a life that would ultimately glorify God. This is not a side issue in the New Testament. It's not a side issue for Micah and the sin that was happening for Israel at that time either. Last week, we introduced the book of Micah, and we said that this book has a a three-part structure, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and then the last part, chapters 6 and 7. And each of those parts, you're going to see two things juxtaposed one against the other. At the first part of those cycles, you hear a lot of judgment and condemnation for Israel, for Judah, and for the sins that they have committed. In the second part of those cycles, you're going to hear hope and salvation, prophecies of a a coming Messiah. Um, Micah chapter 1 was all about judgment, Israel in the north and Judah in the south were worshiping false gods. They sinned against God and they were committing spiritual adultery against God by pursuing other lovers and giving their hearts to other things. 
by putting their functional trust in something or someone other than God for protection and for salvation and for deliverance. From Micah chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, the prophet listed for us 12 cities that were all around the hometown of Micah and Morshet Gath. These cities would have been well known to the people. Certainly they were well known to Micah at that time. And he showed how each of those cities had turned to trusting in something or someone else other than God. And the cities are all word plays. Shafir, a, a city coming from the Hebrew word shafar, that means beauty. Shafir will go off in nakedness and shame. And so what means beauty will now be shameful and ugly before God because of their sin. Lachish, known for its military defenses. God says to him, go harness the horses to the chariots, Lachish. But guess what? Your chariots and your horses will not save you from the judgment of God because you have been unfaithful to the covenant that God had given them. And so trusting in your military forces will do no good for you now. In chapter 2, Micah begins, it's, it's very similar to Micah chapter 1. Again, both chapters are coming judgment to Israel and to Judah because of the sins that they have committed until you get to verses 12 and 13. And 12 and 13 give you a, a hint, a promise of hope that's totally different than everything that we've read in chapters 1 and 2 before this. Uh, you guys all know what the greatest of the Star Wars movies is, I hope, by now. Alex? It's Rogue One, man. You're absolutely 100% right. If you guys think differently, uh, you can adjust, and now you can understand that, those, that Rogue One is the best, okay? And everybody dies. So, sorry about that. Uh, except for maybe like a couple people. Um, Rogue One is by far my favorite of the Star Wars saga. I like, I just, I love it. And there's a part in this movie, it kind of backtracks a little bit. Um, Jen Erso, her father had helped to actually build the Death Star. And he left plans to the Death Star, leaving one single solitary weak spot. So spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Star Wars, Luke blows up the Death Star. All right? That's basically what happens. It's an amazing movie. I'm just going to save you. You don't have to watch any part one through six. Just pick it up in part seven. Okay? You're good to go. Um, there's this part, but he's got to know where to hit the Death Star to blow the thing up. And he gets the plans from his father who had been taken in order to create the Death Star in the very first place. And, her, and this guy's daughter's name is Jen. And all she wants to do is be a part of coming against these imperial forces that want to do nothing but control her and enslave her and, and, and give people over to a life of slavery. So she discovers that there's been these plans that are reserved far off in this imperial installation and she wants to take a, a fleet of, of rebellion soldiers over there, go get the plans for the Death Star, bring it back so they can then blow it up. And, and as she's relating this plan to the council and to the people, one of the characters stands up and says, are you telling me that you want to go invade an imperial installation based on nothing but hope? And she responds and she says, rebellions are built on hope. Sin and judgment and wrath are not the last word with God. Judgment and wrath is never 
the last word with God throughout the scriptures. There's always hope. There's always grace. And so when you read these cycles, we're going to come around to the end of the first cycle in the book of Micah. Of course, we know that sin and judgment is not going to be the last word. When we get up to Micah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, you're going to see verses that are filled with hope and life to come for the people of God. And it's amazing promise of, of the Messiah from the prophets of old. It's, it's so, so very good. Um, let's start in number one, Micah chapter two, number one in our outline. Why we should avoid false teachers. Look down at your text. I'll read for you uh, Micah chapter two, verse one through five. It sounds Jesus is picking up here with this woe oracle in Matthew 23, but here's how it starts. Micah chapter two, verse one. Woe to those who divide wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand to do so. They covet fields and seize them and houses. They take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, verse 1 here is going to contain two references to time as this passage opens. You got a time in their beds at night, and then you got a time uh, in the same verse when morning dawns. If you ever, uh, how many times do I need to say this? I wish we could have gone to Israel. I hope we can go back to Israel. If you go to Israel, they don't say good morning to you there. They say something that goes something like this, Bokratov. Have you heard it before? Bokratov, good morning, is the traditional greeting in Israel, if you ever go there, and, and you'll hear that from the mouths of your tour guides, from all the people. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I encourage you to do so. Um, in Hebrew and in Israel, the morning was understood drastically different than it's understood in, our, in the States here. Typically, when we refer to the morning in the States, we're referring to the time that you wake up in the morning till anything that's before lunch. Okay, so first breakfast and second breakfast happens in the morning. Anytime before noon is technically the morning, right? Uh, in Hebrew, it's not that way. In Hebrew, when they refer to the morning in Israel, they refer to the very first uh, light of dawn, when the stars of night can still be seen and the morning sun is just beginning to pierce through the horizon. That's what they mean when they talk specifically about the morning. Uh, darkness in the ancient Near East is typically associated with evil plotting and scheming, thing, things that happen in dark corners that shouldn't be talked about. Uh, darkness is often a metonymy. It's, it's a, a description or an image used for sin and evil in the Old Testament. This is the time where thieves would steal or plotting destruction or injustice would happen at the nighttime. The light of a new day was, was the time of justice. When the light dawned for a new day, it was the time when the courts were in order. The judges would sit at their benches and they would administer justice. The kings would administer justice for the people. 
And here's what it says in Micah chapter 2. It says in verse 1 that these wicked leaders are devising evil on their beds, and when morning dawns, they perform it. We would expect when morning dawns for justice to come to the land of Israel. But here, we're going from a time of sinfulness in the dark to still sinfulness in the morning and in the light. The light is doing nothing to expose the darkness that happened during the night. This is uh, the people that you would expect to keep the law and administer the law are corrupt individuals and leaders for the nation. And take a step back here now, just for a second. Verses 1 and 2 in Micah chapter 2 are all about judgment, condemnation for Israel. Verses 3 through 5 is the punishment. It's the sentencing for that judgment. And there's two elements that you're going to see uh, juxtaposed, one following the other in this text, that bring this section, this paragraph together. And the two elements are an accusation and the punishment. They're linked by two separate expressions. And these are word plays. These are themes that are going to happen throughout this paragraph. In verse 1, it talks about those who devise wicked plans, or those who devise evil or wickedness. That Hebrew word is the same Hebrew word as verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. Your evil leaders devise wickedness during the night. I am devising a plan against them now. You're going to see another word play with fields. These wicked leaders, corrupt leaders, covet fields of the vulnerable, and they take it from them. They seize the fields. Verse 4, to an apostate, God allots the fields that have been gained by the injustice, the power-manipulating schemes of those in leadership. The evil leaders divide wicked plans. God's devising a plan for them. Wicked leaders use their power to take fields from the poor. God's going to take the fields from those leaders and give it to a foreign nation now who will enslave them, a wicked nation. In other words, this is lex talionis, the judgment fits the crime. God is showing himself to be a just judge. God is fair in his judgment. Uh, Lonesome Dove, all my great theology, comes from Augustus McRae. Big Jake, you're going to ride with an outlaw, you're going to die like an outlaw. This is the justice and the judgment that they deserve. And this is coming because of the wickedness of the leaders in Israel. You guys ever watch the, uh, you ever watch the old gangster movies in the 20s and 30s? Untouchables, Goodfellas. See, I, I don't know why, I just, I love, I'm intrigued by this time of history. In the, in the States and how some of this is betrayed. A true mafia leader spends a lot of time looking really powerful, right? A true mafia leader will surround himself with an entourage and buy really expensive clothing, uh, look the part of somebody that you don't want to really mess with this person because they're a strong very strong leader. You got expensive clothing, you got cars, you got big houses. And all of it is to portray a leader who's coming across as powerful. All of it is a, it's a cover up, it's a makeup job. Look at me. Look at how powerful, look at how significant I am. Fear me because of that. Israel's corrupt leaders 
were seizing land. They were taking it. They were taking advantage of the, of the vulnerable and the poor. And they did it all through this power posturing because they could do it. It was in their power and in their hands to do it. But ultimately, their power and their authority wasn't real because it was what? It was postured in that sense. And we can run into the same types of things in the church today. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He looks really big. He sounds really powerful. But he's not a true leader because why? His power is postured. That's what's happening to the leaders in Israel. And that's why we should avoid them. Not only in this context, in Micah, but also in our context for the church. Number two. We have, number one, we avoid false leaders. Number two, we have to identify false leaders. And so Micah gives us a clue on how to do that, uh, even though this book is thousands of years old. Uh, look down at chapter 2, verse 6. This is a quote now from Micah. He's putting the words of the false prophets in his mouth. The false prophets were saying this, Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us, the false prophets were saying. Verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Verse 10, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Again, now Micah verse 6 here begins with a quotation. He was quoting the false prophets, what they were saying, and they were telling the true prophets, Micah, Isaiah, Hosea, to stop preaching. Stop saying the things that they were saying because the true prophets were saying judgment was about to come to the people. The false prophets were saying, hey, you guys are good, right? God is patient. He's kind. He's loving. Don't worry about the judgment and the justice of God. Uh, they stopped telling the people that, that judgment was coming from God. These false prophets wanted to stick to the love of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, not the judgment of God. I, does that sound familiar to you, by the way? It's very similar to things that are happening in our, our context in our day. Uh, the words used for preaching or prophesy. Some of your texts are going to say a little something different in this paragraph that I just read for you in chapter 2. Uh, the word for preaching or prophesy, it's, it's interesting. It occurs about five times in this one paragraph right here. And, and translators don't really know how to translate it. It's a very technical term that doesn't occur very often in the Old Testament at all. Literally, if you would, would take this very wooden translation, you might read something like this in verse 6. Stop letting words fall drop by drop. Stop preaching these words. Stop preaching these syllables word by word. 
syllable by syllable, drop by drop. Uh, the closest parallel we have to this word comes from Proverbs. Beware the, word, the words of an adulteress, for they drip honey. It's the same kind of meaning that you're going to find here in Micah chapter 2. We don't fully know the image that Micah is drawing from here. It's, it's poetic, it's artistic, it's metaphorical, it's language, it's very abstract. But here's what we do know. Look down at verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, uh, you know, a voidless man who just speaks out into the wind is being referred to here. I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. What happens when a, when a person has too much to drink? Eventually they're going to get drunk. They're going to get sick and potentially they're going to get to the point where they vomit. Micah says, the best preacher for this people right now, since you're not listening to the true prophets and you're listening to the false prophets, Micah says the best preacher among you would be the drunkard who is vomiting in front of you. Why? Because the land that God had given the people is about to vomit Israel up out of it. So these false prophets, if they're going to get drunk and do what drunkards do, that's a great symbol of what God's about to do to the people of Israel because the land has enough of their injustice because of the leaders among them. Verse 8 has a reference to stripping the rich robe. What does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of? Genesis. Joseph, um, your brothers, Israel, are deceiving you and plotting wicked things against you. The same thing that happened with Joseph is now happening to all the people of Israel. It's a great word uh, description there. The mistreatment of the vulnerable women, verse 9, that you get, you've got the whole family that's involved. You've got men wearing rich robes, you've got women, and you've got children in verse 9. I like what uh, G.K. Chesterton says, and I want to just bring this to a, a little bit of an application here. He said this, people usually have one of two things, either a complete and conscious philosophy or the unconscious acceptance of the broken bits of some incomplete and shattered and often discredited philosophy. And here's what he meant by that quote. We often struggle with the truth, right? Because we hear certain things that have small elements or maybe tiny pieces of the truth, but it's not really the truth. Have you guys experienced this in our postmodern world today? You ever experienced something that's a philosophy that's totally wrong, anti-biblical and anti-God? That's not the truth whatsoever, but there's actually little, a little sprinkling of truth in there. It kind of goes back to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians that even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive people into not believing the truth of the gospel. Right? That's exactly what's happening in our culture. That's exactly what's happening in Micah's time. These false prophets, false teachers, they always have a little bit of truth to them. But for the most part, their philosophy, the things that they're basing everything on, is false. And it's a philosophy that goes down a dead-end hole. Um, false teachers in Micah's day were the same as in our day. Their goal was to help the people feel better about themselves. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear 
so that you can feel better about yourself, your self-fulfillment, your identity, the things that you want. And I'm going to tell you this with a little bit of truth in it, but ultimately, at the core, it's wrong and it's false. And it's not the teaching of God. It's not the teaching that he was given to the true prophets of Israel. We've got um, these false prophets that we're teaching. The end of this passage now gets into Micah 2, verse uh, 12 and 13, gets into hope and salvation after these, these two prophecies of judgment. Um, Micah talks about true leadership. Micah 2, verses 12 and 13. This is going to bring the first cycle of judgment and hope to an end. And these verses should sound drastically different than everything we've read up until this point in the book of Micah. Verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you. This is God speaking in the first person singular here. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnants of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and they pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. This passage of hope is based on two images concerning the future Messiah and his true leadership over Israel. The first image is the Messiah as a shepherd. He is a shepherd, a keeper of the sheep and the flock. Notice in verse 12, all the first person singular verbs that were used. I will assemble, I will, I will gather, I will set. These words are directly spoken by God. He is the Messiah who will come and gather Israel together as a shepherd gathers his sheep. They're also written in Hebrew as infinitive absolutes. Infinitive absolutes are extremely emphatic in the text. I will surely gather my people. I will certainly bring them together. Undoubtedly, I will set them out into their pasture lands. They're also uh, emphatic in nature. In God's perfect plan and timing, he's going to come back and he's going to restore Israel back to the promised land. And when he does so, he will be like a shepherd leading his sheep out into the pastures, protecting them, caring for them, feeding them, and watering them. It's one of, the, one of the greatest and most clear examples of the Messiah's leadership that comes to the Old Testament. The second image that you have of the Messiah who's to come is the Messiah not as shepherd, but the Messiah as king. Verse 13, he who opens the breach goes up before them. Listen to the, to the net translation of this verse. It says this, the one who breaks through barriers will go out before them. The king, the one who breaks barriers, will go out and lead his people. In Hebrew, the word is Perez, Peratz, perhaps. You've heard the name Perez in Genesis because Perez broke through. He broke out, as his name suggests. Um, he's in the lineage of Jesus, goes back to Genesis. The idea that's communicated is this. For the shepherd king who was to come, the Messiah who was to come, the Messiah, no barrier is too strong for him. Nothing will hold him back. No army, no obstacle will stand in the way of the Messiah coming back to lead his people out in victory. The Messiah has promised to come for his people. 
He will come back as a king comes to lead his troops in front of them. Messiah is coming back to bring all things into his perfect kingdom. We get imagery of the Passover in Micah 2, 13. I will pass out, I will pass over before them. The king who broke Israel free from slavery. The Messiah is not only the shepherd, he is the king who passed over the darkness and led his people out of Egypt out of the sinful slavery of Egypt at that time in Exodus. In the ancient Near East, here's, the, here's where it all comes together. Shepherds would lead the sheep in a specific way. For a shepherd to lead the sheep, they don't lead in front of the sheep. Shepherd lead from behind. They call to the sheep when they go astray. But in order for the shepherd to see all the sheep, he's got to be behind them leading them into the pastures into a, specific genera- into a specific direction. A king, on the other hand, leads from in front. The king is the one who breaks through the barriers. The king is the one who breaks down all walls and all obstacles and leads his troops to victory and his people to peace and to an eternal kingdom. Jesus is the greatest leader who ever lived and ever will live. He, he leads not only from behind the people, he leads from in front, and he leads all around the people as well, protecting, guiding, and caring for them. Let's talk about a, a couple of points of application. We'll, we'll close up this morning. Number one, concerning the false teachers of Israel. False teachers, even in our time. Discernment is needed to both identify and discern and avoid false teachers. Discernment is needed to identify and avoid false teachers and leaders. Satan will always do whatever he can to lead people astray, and he will often use false leaders to do so. It happens in the church, unfortunately. Uh, We know the difficulties of a godless culture, of a secular culture, and the world in which we live. We know the difficulties of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul says something very interesting about this. I want you to, you can turn from Micah. We're not going to look at any more verses there. Turn over to the New Testament, Acts chapter 20. And I'm just going to read a couple verses here to point this out. These are scary verses to think about. Something that we need to be vigilant uh, concerning leadership in the church and teachers who lead the church. Uh, Look at Acts 20, verse 28. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. It's a farewell address to them before he goes off. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. But he gives them a a few final commands. Okay, so the Apostle Paul talking about church leaders in Ephesus who will remain after he is gone. says this, Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so the church doesn't belong to the elders. The church belongs to God. It's his church. He has given elders responsibility over the church in a human way to give it uh, leadership. But... The church belongs to God. Then he says this, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, does your text say? 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Listen, the Apostle Paul is not talking about some guy coming in off the street or a person coming in who's not a part of Tulsa Bible Church. He's talking about somebody who's coming in from among Tulsa Bible Church to lead people astray. And he says it's the elders' responsibility to make sure that they protect the flock from fierce wolves who would do such things. This is people that would come up in our own midst. And the same thing happened for Israel in the time of the Old Testament. Watch out for the heretic. They are usually tall, tan, and they're terrific, and they speak with charisma. But their doctrine is wrong. Their gospel is wrong. One of the best things that happened uh, for me when I was interviewing here at Tulsa Bible Church it was a big interview that we had in the gym. I can't believe you guys pulled this thing off. Uh, but everybody assembled at the Sunday school hour in the gym, and it was a one big church interview. Me and, and Brandy were up on stage and anybody could ask any question they wanted to. How are you going to, you know, administer and uh, coordinate that one? Um, one of the very first questions that came, Jared, what is the gospel? When that question was asked, I knew that this was a church that cared deeply about Scripture and about the truth of the gospel and wanted to protect the truth of the gospel no matter what, especially with leaders and pastors who would come into it. One of the best things that God has given to us over his church is spiritually mature leaders who know truth, who know the gospel, who will protect the church from heresy and from false teachers, who always put a little bit of truth in there, but they are leading people astray. Watch out for heretics. Watch out for the charlatan. Watch out for the tickler who simply wants to tell you what you want to hear to make you feel better about yourself. Guard yourselves against such people. The gospel certainly does help you feel better about yourselves, but it doesn't start that way. It starts with helping you feel terrible about yourself because of sin and because of the wrath of God against sin, right? which calls for a need for repentance and the grace of God and faith. Uh, to him and to him alone. Number two, true spiritual leadership is always centered on the truth of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ. True spiritual leadership is always centered on the truth of God's word and the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest leaders among you are not the ones who are trying to get their own following and stand out from among the, the crowd. The greatest leaders among you are the ones who point you clearest and most definitively to the person and the work of Jesus. In the truth of Scripture, the greatest leaders are those who go to God's Word and read what it says in any given situation and how it might apply, not to their own thoughts and their own philosophies and their own ways. Jesus was the greatest leader who ever lived. He led at every level. The powerful came to Jesus. The powerless were comforted by Jesus. He showed grace to the marginalized. He showed to the significant how much they needed a savior. And his greatest act of leadership was to become a servant. Our job as leaders, elders, deacons, husbands, our job as leaders is not to point people back to ourselves. 
is to point people to Jesus, the truth of his word, his life, the perfect life that he lived, and how he served as an example of the greatest leader and the greatest leadership that we could ever, ever experience. He served so much, in fact, that he gave his life on the death on a cross on our behalf. He served us all the way until the end, showing his great love for us. Israel had leaders that were doing the exact opposite. Israel had leaders who wanted to serve themselves instead of serving the people. And therefore, God was bringing upon them exile by the Assyrians first and then by Babylon. Our job is to point people to Jesus, point people to God's word, and help them see a clearer picture of Jesus. Let's pray. You've been listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Thank you.